I really wanted to spend this time, spend four Sundays, four sermons, talking about the church. What is the church? We, this is by no means a comprehensive study. It's, a, I believe, a substantial study. We'll look at what the church is. We'll talk about some things that it's not. We'll hopefully sweep away, wipe away a lot of confusion that is existent, even prevalent today with regard to the church and what the church is and what the church does and how the church wins people and what the church is not to do, things like that. Talk a lot about those things. But this morning in particular, as we begin this series of messages, we're going to look in such a way that will help us to think biblically about the church. You say, well, of course. I mean, that's what we do, right? Isn't that what churches do? We think biblically. We look at the Bible to see what the Bible says about things. But I would say that if there is any area with regard to the church, where churches have had a tendency in our day to not think biblically, believe it or not, it is the structure of the church itself. There's a well-known Baptist pastor in Georgia, extremely well-known Baptist pastor, who has made it clear that the concept of shepherding is no longer helpful to the church. Today, pastors are not shepherds, they are CEOs. He said that. I couldn't believe he said it, but he said it. And sadly, many people have embraced that idea. I was told years ago when I was on staff at a particular church, Todd, you need to stop being a shepherd. Those were the exact words. You need to stop being a shepherd. You need to become a rancher. Stop being a shepherd. Become a rancher. I knew at that moment that it was time for me to begin seriously figuring out how to get out of that place. It's the sad reality today that so much of what the church has embraced has not come even through the Bible, much less from the Bible. They're not looking at the Bible as a grid through which to understand what the church is to be about and who the church is and who's in the church, who's not in the church. But they're not even using the Bible as a grid. They're not even using it as criteria. They're not thinking about the fact that the scripture has laid this out for us. Why? Uh, I think there are a number of reasons, but probably one of the greatest reasons is numbers. They're doing everything they possibly can to increase the numbers. Uh, More numbers means more money. In some cases, I think that could be the motive as well. I don't know what a man's motive is. I'm not trying to say that I know that about any man or or a lot of men. I'm simply saying that that certainly could be the motive. And I do know that in in a number of cases, there are those who will adamantly, even angrily, proclaim to the congregation, you need to fill the seats next to you. God has, in his timing and by his great grace, filled the seats next to you in our church. More and more and more, we're seeing the Lord bless our church, not by the fact that we're doing anything to appeal to the flesh, to bring people here. If anything, the things that we do, because they don't appeal to the flesh, they turn people away who are looking for us to appeal to the flesh. If we're not doing everything we possibly can to entertain people, then there, of course, will be people who say, I don't really like it there. But as long as we are doing what we're doing by the power of the Spirit of God and appealing to the Spirit of God within the person with the text of Scripture and genuinely doing what would honor Christ And Christ is going to move on the hearts of those who love him, not just in our local church, we're not the only local church, but in any true local church that's genuinely devoted to a biblical understanding of what the church is. You know this, I don't have to tell you this, there's a massive movement, there are massive movements today that are doing everything they can to simply make the church bigger. And many times their argument would be, and this is, if this is true in their hearts, we we don't Uh, criticize this Uh, they're saying well we want more people to be saved well so do we so do we but we're unwilling to do anything except that which is prescribed in the scripture and they would say well no 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 no. that's that's good but we got some innovative stuff that can you know really crank things up a notch and we'll get more people in what happens then is that the church becomes polluted what do i mean by that i don't mean i'm not talking about the idea that Uh, that unbelievers are in the church and we don't want that. I'm not saying that. We do want to minister to unbelievers. We do not want unbelievers to say, man, I don't don't want to go back there. We want unbelievers to feel that we love them. 
We want unbelievers who don't love Christ, who don't love the church, to see that we love them despite the fact that they don't love Christ and they don't love the church. We want to minister to them. But what I'm talking about when I talk about the church being polluted is not the idea of, of unbelievers being mixed. The Bible tells us there will be tares among the wheat. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us there will be factions among the church, and those factions serve their purpose. That's so that those who are in Christ, those who are truly approved, will be proved to be approved. What I'm talking about is when the church becomes top-heavy with unbelievers. What I'm talking about is when the church becomes the church of the tares. And it's filled with unbelievers. And there are no lines drawn between believers and unbelievers. And nobody anymore knows the difference. And everybody says things like, well, whether or not he's a believer, that's between him and the Lord. And that is the sad reality that has happened in so many churches today. And so I felt it was time as we approach... Uh, soon the process of going through membership documentation you would understand biblically why membership is a biblical concept this is not something new it's a biblical idea and I think you'll see that as we go through the scripture some would say well you don't see the word membership in the Bible you do see the word member in the Bible in the same way you don't see the word discipleship in the Bible you do see the word disciple so when we talk about membership, we're talking about members of the body of Christ. Well, this morning, as I said, we want to look at the authority of the church. Where do we get our marching orders? Why do we believe what we believe? Who is the authority? Where does the criteria come from by which we determine what we do as a church and what we don't do as a church? I think this will be an enjoyable study. I think you're going to learn a lot. I hope to learn a lot myself. But as I said this morning, we are going to look at her authority, the authority of the church. Who sets the standard for the church? Who establishes the guidelines, the rules, the core values, the purpose or purposes, the practices, the principles? Is there such a thing as church membership in the Bible? If so, what does it look like? If not, why do so many churches have it? Is there such a thing as a doctrinal statement in the Bible? Must a church have a doctrinal statement? Should they be exactly the same as every other good church? If so, who has the original and how do we get a copy? What kind of attendance should be expected from the individual members? What about involvement? How about service, giving? What about being served and receiving gifts within the church? Who is part of the church and who is not? Who decides these things? What are the criteria? And does it change? Should it change? Should our culture play a role in determining this and other matters related to the church? Who is the authority in these things? Who decides? Now, many would say, you might have known someone like this, you might have been this way yourself at one time, maybe you are today. Many would say, Jesus is my only authority and the Bible is my doctrinal statement. Sounds a little oversimplified doesn't it? I might say to that person, really? And what does Jesus say about your doctrinal statement? What do you do about a doctrinal statement? What if someone wanted to know your doctrinal statement? You just give them a Bible? This is what we believe? What if they wanted to know, what if someone wanted to know about your church membership or your children's ministry policies? Who should change diapers in the nursery? Where will your church meet? Who cleans the building, mows the grass, changes the light bulbs? Those things are in the Bible. Jesus tells you how to manage those things, how to handle those things. What does the Bible say about how to care for members of the flock for spiritual growth, victory over sin, developing sound financial practices, or how to minister to wayward or even unfaithful church members? What about widows and orphans? How about dealing with sexual immorality in the church or even adultery in a church family? What about what to do in the loss of a job or in the loss of a loved one? Yes, it's true. Jesus is the ultimate authority. But what does that look like in practice? How does that manifest itself? How is it revealed in the local body? We will look at the biblical church, her sovereign, her authority, her ruler. Before we can look at our marching orders, we must be certain about who is in charge. Many people have referred to Jesus by various different terms. 
The Bible has a number of terms for him. He's Savior, he's Lord, he's King of Kings, he's the suffering servant, he's many things. In our era, when there is much emphasis on this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus, you've seen some folks oversimplify or boil those things down to a bumper sticker. Jesus is my co-pilot. He's my homeboy. He's my buddy. There's nothing honoring to Jesus Christ about any of those terms. It puts him into a position in which he does not desire to be put. He is your servant. He is your Savior. He is the suffering servant. But he is also sovereign king. And he is ultimately the executioner of those who will reject him. He is not simply a limp-wristed, weak, feminine individual who plays and panders to the desires and the needs of those who think that they have sovereignty or what some would refer to as free will. Jesus is the God-man. He refers to himself as the great I am in John 8. When the Jews are asking him who he is, what is his response? He says, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be God. They considered that to be blasphemy, and they attempted to kill him in the moment. Jesus is God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, God the Father refers to God the Son as God. He is God. Uh, we could do a lengthy study, and we have. We could do a number of studies on the person of Jesus Christ, the deity of Jesus Christ, the rulership of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we're going to focus simply on the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, his authority, the fact that he is, in fact, the head of all those who know him. As the incarnate God, God in the flesh, the God-man, Jesus dwelt among sinful man. He served God and man without sin, bore the sins of man with its stain, shame, guilt, as well as the righteous, wrathful rage of his Father who was pleased for man's sake to crush his only Son. Jesus soon, days later, conquered that sin and death when he arose from the dead, declaring and displaying his victory over sin and death and granting that to all who would trust him and his substitutionary death and death-conquering resurrection, eternal life. To everyone who would trust him and his substitutionary death and his death-conquering resurrection, he grants eternal life. But just after that had been accomplished, and just prior to his physical ascension into heaven, Jesus gave these final words on earth to his disciples when he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And this, as you know, the words that immediately precede the, what we consider to be the great commission of the church to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus' words are no small statement when he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. In Mark chapter 1, verse 27, we read these words about Jesus that were an expression of really a, a befuddled disposition of those who looked on and heard his teaching. They were amazed. They were astonished. They were taken aback. What is this, they said? A new teaching with authority. This is why Paul's words to Titus in Titus 2, verse 15, are to teach with authority. It is a sad reality that there are numerous instances where a man will step up to teach the Word of God and he does not do it with authority. And as you know, the call is not for that man to pull or claim or rest in his own authority. But it is to believe that the authoritative Word of God is the genuine and real and voracious 
expression of the heart of the God-man Jesus Christ who is himself the authority. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. As we look at Jesus' authority this morning, I want to give you a few categories. I want to start with heaven. Jesus is the authority in heaven. In Revelation 5, verse 13, we read, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Much ado going on today about what's going on in heaven. Most of it wrong. Nearly all of it in print form, in book form. Not only erroneous, but blasphemous. They all contradict each other. There are good books written on heaven. Please don't think that I'm saying that there are no valid books written on heaven. But the book Heaven is for Real is not for real. And you need to be cautious and really discerning about things like this. You know somebody who's been moved emotionally by this idea that is given to us in the, the book and the movie, Heaven is for Real. It's a phony. There's nothing real about it. It is not expressive of what the Bible says about heaven. If there's anything we know about heaven, it is that Jesus is the authority in heaven, as you've seen expressed in this passage in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Why? Because he is the ruler of heaven. There is no one who exercises authority over him. He himself is the authority. He is the sovereign one of heaven. For those who will spend eternity in heaven, it will be spent bowing before him, worshiping him, laying ourselves at his feet, and we will enjoy that. Not simply because he's in charge, but that's part of it. We will do what he commands us to do because he is our commander. We see Jesus' authority. We see him as the sovereign on earth. In Isaiah 45, starting with verse 1, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose belts of kings and to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The lordship, the authority, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is known and has been known throughout all the earth. There will be those who will deny it, but ultimately they will fall before him. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. This passage given to us in Isaiah chapter 45 is one expression of how that is revealed on the earth. We lament, we despair, we are discouraged over all that's going on in our country. And there's nothing wrong with that so long as you keep things in perspective. Who puts leaders in positions of authority? Who establishes authority? The one who is the authority. He has his reasons. He has his sovereign purposes for these things. But Jesus is not only Lord. He is not only sovereign in heaven. He is sovereign on the earth. When you see something take place that makes you scratch your head, that even makes you become discouraged, do not forget the fact that Jesus is the authority who allows what he allows and he causes what he causes. He is sovereign over all things. He has ordained all that would come to pass for his glory. 
And when you or I become tempted to think that somehow something that's happening is somehow outside of his sovereign decree, we've forgotten the fact that he is the authority. He is sovereign in heaven and on earth. He is sovereign in creation. Who created the heavens and the earth? Colossians 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. If you stop there, you might be willing, like many Jehovah's Witnesses, to believe that he somehow was a created being. He is a man. He, as a baby, became flesh. But the passage goes on in verse 16 to tell us, for by him all things were created. How does that work? Because he is sovereign. He is God. He is God in eternity past. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. One more expression of his sovereignty over all things throughout the whole world. He not only created the heavens and the earth, He sustains them. A few days ago, one of my boys asked about the rotation of the sun. And I said, well, the the sun is where it is. It looks like it's moving, but we're actually moving. And I began to make some effort to explain how the, the earth goes around the sun, and it actually spins, and it spins several directions, not just one direction, not just side to side. And I talked about the fact that other planets do that as well. And I realized I was in way deeper than I'm able. But I quickly said, you know, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Uh, And my wife thankfully chimed in and said, yeah, we don't understand all that, but it's remarkable that God has set things in motion. But he is not the God of deism. The God of deism is the God who created things and just sit back and said, I'm going to take a break and see how this turns out. He sustains it all. And were he to take a breath were he to take a nap, were he to take a Sabbath at this point, it would all implode and explode and all kinds of things that we can't possibly even imagine and come to a screeching halt. He sustains it. He is sovereign over all creation. He is sovereign over his own life and resurrection. In John 10, verse 18, no one has taken it away from me, speaking of his own life, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father, the one who, by the way, gave him all authority. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This man, Jesus Christ, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God, in his willingness to suffer and die for mankind, all the while is exhibiting his own sovereignty He, being raised up again, put an end to the agony of death. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter and John praying aloud in Acts 4, verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, them praying to the Father, Lord, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The sovereignty of God in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ explained here in a couple of passages in very concise but very clear and confirming reality. Jesus himself has sovereignty over his own life, even his own death and his resurrection. He has sovereignty over all of mankind. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. He goes on there to explain the relationship between the man and the woman, speaking of submission. And there, although, is equality among men and women in the relationship in the home, as well as equality between men and women in the church, there is a pattern 
is a pattern of leadership, and that starts with Christ's headship over man. He's sovereign over every man. He's sovereign over mankind. At this point, it might be helpful to mention the fact that nobody ever made Jesus Lord. Nobody ever asked him to be Lord, resulting in him becoming Lord. He is Lord. Nobody ever accepted him as Lord. He is Lord. He has always been Lord. You say, well, what about the unbeliever? How do we refer to that person who does not express the Lordship of Jesus Christ? We say that he is disobedient to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And he, although he has a will, not a free will, but a will, clearly exercises his ability and willingness to disobey the sovereign one who is still sovereign. The fact that he is sovereign and allows for disobedience, although he condemns it, does not make him somehow impotent. He himself still is sovereign over mankind. Jesus Christ is sovereign in salvation. In Colossians 1, verse 13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who rescued us? He rescued us. John 10, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who did he lay his life down for? For the sheep. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Just in the moment you started maybe thinking, well, they became sheep because they believed. No, 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 no. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It is the moment at which the shepherd finds the sheep that the person is awakened and becomes a member of the flock in an earthly sense. But he is a sheep in eternity past because of the sovereign shepherd's choice. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's impossible to lose your salvation. It's really a silly topic, to be quite candid with you. The real issue is perseverance. If a person perseveres, he shows himself to be one of the sheep of the sovereign shepherd in Acts 20, verse 28, as Paul is leaving Ephesus and he's warning the elders there, there will be wolves who come in in sheep's clothing and they will come in to destroy you and the body. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Whom did he purchase? He purchased the church. Jesus is also sovereign over demons. We see this a number of times in the scripture. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gerardines, two men were demon-possessed, met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, "'What business do we have with each other, Son of God?' Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. The man who has the ability to exercise authority even over demons. He is not only sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over the head demon. He's sovereign over the angel who fell and took a third of the angelic host with him. He is sovereign over Lucifer. He is sovereign over Satan. He is not his brother. They are not brothers. They were never brothers. 
He created the demons. He created the angels who fell and exhibited demonic intent. There's no battle going on with any expectation that demons will one day win the battle. Jesus wins in the end. Jesus exercises his authority and his sovereignty over all things in the end. In Revelation 17, verse 14, These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. In Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come! Assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Jesus Christ, the Lamb, who will rule with an iron fist and a mighty sword one day, is no wimp. He is not the subject. He is not the victim. He is not somehow plan B in God's redemptive plan that unfortunately suffered at the hands of a mighty and great warrior named Satan. Satan is but a pawn, and he is evil, and he is wicked, and he is strong, and he is intelligent, and he is powerful beyond our comprehension, but his abilities pale in comparison to the one who created him. And the Creator's purposes will be fulfilled even with the evil one. Jesus Christ is also sovereign over sickness. In Mark 5, a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I will get well. Immediately, the flow of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction Jesus Christ is no less able to heal the sick today than he was in that day. Why? Because he is sovereign. He is the sovereign king. He is sovereign over all the details. In Revelation 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So once again, an expression of his sovereignty, his authority over Satan. Satan is not the authority in your sickness. Don't attribute your illness, your weakness, your difficulties to Satan. He is not sovereign. In some movements, there is a demon behind every tree and under every rock. And all we must do is have enough faith to overcome and conquer those demons. The scripture calls you simply to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. You have no authority, nor do I, over Satan. You have no involvement with him. You have no need nor any instruction to engage with him on any level at all. The command is to 
Resist him, and he will flee from you. He knows that one day your sovereign Savior will completely exercise eternal rule and dominion over Satan, and that he ultimately will actually even be destroyed. Not only is Jesus sovereign in all of these things that we have mentioned, he is sovereign over the earth, over heaven, he is sovereign over sickness, he is sovereign over Satan and over demons. He is also sovereign over death. Death has nothing on Jesus Christ. You know from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's truly a, a taunting question. O death, you who are so powerful, you who have stricken so much grief in so many, where is your power now? It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that displays his sovereignty, his authority, even over death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Paul the Apostle, a rather mature Christian, asks 20 years into his faith in Christ. Why? Because he laments, why do I do what I don't want to do? This is Romans 7. Why do I not do what I want to do? And he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us there. He expresses not only Jesus' sovereignty over death, but also over sin. Paul, at the end of that chapter, gives us these beautiful words when he speaks of the fact that it is the death of Jesus Christ. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Oh, give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ. Death did not hold him in the grave. It does not hold you in the grave, nor does your sin imprison you if you have trusted in him. He not only has sovereignty over death, he has sovereignty over, th over the forgiveness of sins. He sovereignly and authoritatively grants forgiveness of sins. In Mark 2, verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Who is this man that even forgives sins? And in some cases where he has forgiven sin, he grants physical healing. Who is this man that forgives sins? He is the God-man. He is the sovereign king. He is the authority over all men, over all nations, over death, over sin, over heaven, over earth. And he is, in fact, sovereign such that he grants forgiveness of sins. His authority was questioned on more than one occasion but in Luke chapter 20 in verse 1 on one of those days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him and they spoke saying to him tell us by what authority you are doing these things and who is the one who gave you this authority a seeming inquisitive spirit a seeming sincere interest in knowing where this authority comes from perhaps they're genuine perhaps they have a faithful and sincere zeal they want to be corrected but the question has been asked jesus response in verse three jesus answered and said to them i will also ask you a question and you tell me was the baptism of john from heaven or from men they reasoned among themselves saying if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Meaning, it's none of your business. His authority is granted to him by the Father. And the one that comes to him on other terms, on different terms, on his own terms, is not going to get answers that he can understand. 
Many times, as you know, Jesus spoke in parables. And when he did, uh, on a couple of occasions, he chastised the disciples for not knowing what he was talking about. How do you not understand this? Well, why would he do that? Because they had the ability to comprehend what he talked about. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot comprehend them. But the spiritual man appraises all things. I'm speaking to you, my disciples, in parables because I know you can understand them, but the world cannot. The one who does not understand the Word of God, the one who does not have ears to hear, he doesn't have eyes to see, his mind has not been illumined, his heart has not been opened, the Spirit of God has not regenerated his heart, he hasn't given him new life. And so Jesus says, none of your business, essentially. Neither will I tell you by whom I have received this authority. You are not my brother, you are not my sister, You are not adopted children of the Father. You come to me on false pretenses. You have interest in things, but it's only a fleeting and selfish interest. You're a passerby. You're looking for spectacle. You're looking for spectacular events, something that's going to keep you coming back. I am that authority. Whether or not you believe it, I am that authority. The authority that Jesus exercised was not on trial. He would not be questioned by insincere question askers. He displayed his authority, and in so displaying it, he didn't feel compelled to explain it to those who were disingenuous thrill-seekers. In Matthew chapter 4, it's an interesting unfolding of events here i think we have well established that jesus is sovereign he is the authority and yet prior to going to the cross satan tempted him he offered authority then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms, all of the world, and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Jesus bore all the authority of all eternity, and yet for a time set aside his deified prerogatives. Momentarily, he set aside his sovereignty. He didn't stop being God. It's so important that you understand that. Jesus didn't somehow become of another nature. He took on an additional nature. He is 100% God. He is 100% man in that he is the God-man, not the man-God, not a man who became a God, who did well enough to become deity, like some cults teach, but the God-man who condescended to mankind, who ministered to mankind by becoming a baby, by becoming selfless and defenseless for a time, that he would grow in wisdom and stature, and that he would ultimately express that sovereignty, but in the proper timing. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself. He being God humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Scripture tells us, 1 Peter 5 tells us that he would be exalted to the proper place at the proper time. 
in the church, we serve one authority. We serve one sovereign. So again, when we ask questions about what the church is, how the church should make decisions, how the church should be led, how the church should serve, what the church should be committed to, we serve one sovereign. We have one king. We have one head. And he has given us specific instructions on how to determine things that are not listed in print specifically in the Scripture. In other words, he has given us wisdom. How did Jesus respond to the the threefold effort of Satan to tempt him? In each case, he responded with Scripture. He leaned upon the Word of God. He made it clear, clear that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And yet, as I said earlier, there is so much effort these days to do things within the church to draw people in by being innovative, by being creative. And our friend Mark Dever has said it well. Whatever you win them with is what you will need to keep them with. So, if we keep it simple and stay strictly to the Word of God and believe that the Spirit of God will use His Word to win His sheep, there will be a massively smaller amount of confusion with regard to who the believers are and who they aren't. So we subject ourselves to His authority. Ephesians 5, verse 23 tells us that Christ is also the head of the church, He Himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, He then says, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. As we looked at that passage last week in 1 Peter, we looked at a small microcosm of that. And we'll never see that displayed perfectly. As I pointed out to you, Men, it's never your role or my role to remind our wives of that role of theirs. It is our role to exhibit the love of Christ. What is headship? What does it look like? What does Christ's sovereign rule look like in our lives? It is a willingness to sacrifice his life. It's a willingness to lay himself down. And you know that the scripture tells us there is no greater love than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends that's what sovereignty looks like that's what god's grace looks like the one who holds all authority gives his life to all those who will trust him to every man every woman who will subject himself to the lordship of jesus christ in what context the church There's no category of Christian in the Scripture without the church. There is no churchless Christianity. Of what is Christ the head? Of what is Christ the master, the ruler, the principal, the king, the sovereign? He is sovereign over the church. Yes, he is sovereign over all mankind and over heaven and over hell and over earth and over sin and over forgiveness and over death. But where does he exercise that rule? He exercises that rule with a loving, sacrificial heart in the church. Colossians 1, verse 18 says, He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn. He is the example, as we've seen from 1 Peter. We are to walk in his footsteps. What do those footsteps look like? They look like involvement in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're to be a faithful and evangelistically effective 
church of Jesus Christ, it will be because we subject ourselves to his lordship. It will be because we will honor him in our lives. It will be because we will serve one another, love one another, suffer for one another, weep with one another, rejoice with one another. We will be so deeply involved in one another's lives that people will look at us and know us by our love one for another. This is no small task, and it's highly unusual in our culture. Whom do we serve? We serve the head of the church. The church is his place. The church is his bride. The church is those for whom he died. One last passage, and we'll close. In 1 Timothy 6, as Paul closes his letter to Timothy, he says in verse 15 of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. The King James translates this word sovereign here as potentate. It's a word that you and I don't much use, if at all, today. It's obviously rooted in the word potent or potency. It means power. He is the powerful one. He is the potentate. Uh, Many, many years ago, it was a term used for kings in positions of sovereign leadership. Uh, The king was the potentate. Jesus is the ultimate potentate. He is the ultimate powerful one. And although he holds sovereign rulership over all things, whether in heaven or on the earth, he yet is our friend and our brother who condescended to us, giving us new life in him, if we've trusted in him to have received eternal life through the forgiveness of sins. Father, we look to you now, believing that you in your kindness have granted us adoption into your family. But as we have surveyed the scripture this morning, we see that the church is, in fact, the apple of your eye and that your son is clearly the love of your life. He is your son He is your only son, and somehow it pleased you to crush him. We think of Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The scripture tells us that though he knew no sin, he became sin. On behalf of us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Lord, may we be known by that. May our church be known by the smaller entities of people groups within it. May our small yet thriving and vibrant family groups grow to love one another more deeply, to honor Christ more fervently, to pray more passionately, to find Christ to be good that though he is sovereign, he is not unkind. Though he is powerful, he is not unthinking he is the great king and yet he is compassionate so now we look to you we look to him to sing of our great sovereign savior amen